0: well good evening many of you know that i like to uh, travel especially uh, i enjoy going to other countries and part of the reason for that is over the years i've been able to go to a lot of missions trips mostly in central america but also to europe and then my my wife is really adept at finding amazing travel deals Uh, and she likes to travel as well for example um, recently we went As many of you know, to Iceland, she found a round-trip airfare deal from Pittsburgh to Iceland for $203. Again, that's round-trip. And so I just enjoy traveling, but one thing I have noticed over the years as I've traveled to various places and I've been in different airports in different countries, I, I have to admit that I've been embarrassed on occasion by the behavior of fellow Americans. Um, Oftentimes, Americans are just loud and boisterous. We kind of act like we own the airport or we own the country. I I just get this sense that we're looking down on everyone else, that we think the whole world revolves around us, and I, I just find I'm embarrassed. I Remember, I had this same feeling years ago when I watched the movie Chariots of Fire. This might date me just a little bit, but I remember watching that movie, and maybe it was just my perception of the movie. But they depicted the British as being so refined and so respectful and dignified. And then, and then when they started focusing on the Americans, we were just kind of wild and loud and everything else. And I just kind of felt embarrassed. Today, I want to talk about um, the impact that our behavior has on other people as Christians. Because I feel like the way in which Americans many times act overseas, it just reflects negatively upon people in our country. It's part of the reason I think people look down on us. But I wonder sometimes, as we live our lives as Christians, are there things that we do that really turn people away from Christ or turn people away from faith? Now, today we're going to be continuing our series called Clear as Mud. It's a series that's based on what I consider to be the most important message that has ever been communicated since the beginning of time. There's no message that's more important than this one. Paul wrote about this message in Romans 1 16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Of course, the word gospel just means good news. I'm not ashamed of this message of good news, why? Because it's God's power for salvation to everyone. Who believes? The word salvation, of course, means to be delivered from the penalty of our sin. And so there's a message out there that is so powerful that it is able to save a soul. It's able to bring us to a place where our sins are removed from us and we can spend an eternity with God in heaven. And so, therefore, it's a message with eternal consequences, especially for those who don't respond to the message. And so the first couple of weeks of the series, I spent time talking about exactly what the gospel is and what it is not. Simply put, the gospel, or the good news is this, that we have a sin problem that we can't fix. And so God so loved the world that he sent his son to come in to this world to live a sinless life, to die in our place and for the things we've done wrong. He took the penalty for us so that God could extend forgiveness to us as a free gift And Jesus rose again from the dead. It demonstrated that the the sacrifice had been accepted by God. And we have promises throughout the Old and New Testament that if we'll put our trust in him, specifically in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for us, we will receive the gift of eternal life. The one thing I emphasized about this whole message is it's really about what God does for us, not what we do for him. And so many times I think people just can't get it out of their minds that what we need to do is be good or we need to work at it or go to church. They think that the emphasis is on what we do for God if we want to get to heaven. And in the New Testament especially, we read, no, it's all about what he did for us. And we have to understand this because if not, we'll never know where we stand with God. If you're standing with God... It's based on anything you do or don't do for or against God. If that's the basis of your standing with God, you will never know where you stand with him. And yet John, one of Jesus' closest friends, said we can know where we stand today because our confidence is in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so after I talked about this for a couple of weeks, then Josh spoke about the fact that we can know for sure, that we can have this assurance Our assurance is based on the promise God has made to us. It's based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. The problem is that oftentimes when we talk about this gospel, this good news as being something that's free, or when I talk about the fact that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, past, present, and future, people struggle over that because they think, well, that means that you could put your trust in Jesus and then live like the devil, I mean, people have asked me before, are you telling me that if I become a Christian, I I can do this or that and I'll still go to heaven? And the answer to the question is surprisingly, I suppose for many, yes. But I'm convinced that if a person really has a relationship with God through faith in Christ, it will change the way they live their lives. It couldn't help but change because of all the things that happen the moment a person believes. One of the most significant is that the Spirit of God comes to live within us. He begins the changes from the inside out, and so there will be a difference. But once again, it's based on what he does for us, not what we do for him. Today, I want to talk about this idea of what this faith in Christ should look like. Because even though the message is free and salvation is free, I think that God wants us to use our lives now to serve Christ. Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He said, he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. So you put your trust in Christ and you are forgiven free of charge but then there's this suddenly this desire that we should have to live for the one who died for us to say because of what you've done for me and because of this gift I'm gonna begin living for you. And that will begin changing our lives. Now, my main takeaway here today is this, that we should represent Christ well as citizens of heaven. We need to represent Christ well. As I mentioned in my opening illustration, I think we should represent our country well when we're traveling because it reflects positively or negatively based on the things we do. The same thing's true of our relationship with Christ. People are watching us. And so we're citizens of heaven. What would that look like? Now, I want to focus tonight primarily on one verse. I'll throw in some others at the end, but mostly one verse. It's Philippians 1 and verse 27. And there's a lot more to this verse than meets the eye. Why don't you follow along as I read? Paul writes, Just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you That you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. He says, just one thing, live a life worthy of the gospel. Of course, our whole series is about the gospel. And tonight, the focus is on living a life worthy of this message. Now, he starts with these words. He says, just one thing. The question is, is it really just one thing? I mean, is it really just one thing we need to do? Is that what Paul is saying? And actually, it might again surprise you, but the answer is yes. That's exactly what it means. Paul is saying, here's the one thing, which I like one thing. I mean, when I'm wondering what to do, you know, I I just like the idea, just one thing. One thing. A scholar by the name of Vincent puts it this way, this one thing I urge as the only thing needful. That's how he translates that opening statement. This is just one thing I'm going to urge you to do. It's the only thing that you need to be doing. Another scholar concurs, P.T. O'Brien. Paul does not set forth a series of exhortations, but only one. And it's crucial. Yet this one exhortation is comprehensive since it covers every aspect of the reader's lives. He's basically saying, there's, yeah, there's just one thing we need to do, but it involves your whole life. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, there's a little bit more to this than meets the eye. And to understand it, I think we need to go back to actually the language in which the Bible is written plus a little bit of the history. Because Paul, when he said, live your life, when he used that phrase, in a manner worthy of the gospel, that phrase, it was unique, the way he used the words, compared to other times when he talked about living for Jesus or living a certain way, he chose a particular Greek word. It's a word from which we get our English word politics, ironically, at least given the season of our country right now. The word literally means to live as citizens. A scholar by the name of Leitner summarizes it this way, the words live your life translate a political word which would mean much to the Philippian believers. Literally, it means live as citizens. Because Philippi was a Roman colony, the Christian inhabitants of the city would appreciate Paul's use of that verb. Now, normally I don't focus on a particular word or, you know, what's the significance of this word, but in this case, What Paul said was very, very meaningful to his audience. When he chose to not just say, live your life, but he chose to say, live as citizens worthy of this message. Live up to the glory that is this message of the gospel. When he chose to use a particular word, he was speaking to a special special situation that occurred in the city of Philippi. Now... Just a little history lesson, and I know some people don't like history, but Philippi was named after Alexander, the great's father. His name was Philip of Macedon. And Philippi, this city that's located in modern Greece, was at one time the capital of really the Greek empire. It was it a was significant, very, very significant city. In fact, the city of Philippi had its own constitution. And so it was a very significant city in time, though the Romans took over. And they did something that was kind of the practice of the day. The Romans populated the city with ex-soldiers and other important people. In other words, Caesar would say, because you've served in my army, I'm giving you land in Philippi. Now, why was that significant? Well, because in Paul's day, to live in Philippi was less than living in Rome, or at least it could have been. What I mean by this, and let me try to clarify this idea. In our country, if you live in America, it doesn't matter what state you live in, you enjoy the same rights and privileges, right? It it doesn't matter what state, we're all under the same laws. I mean, some states have some benefits that others don't, but for the most part, if you're an American, you enjoy certain privileges based on the fact that you are a citizen of the United States, And the people that lived in Washington, D.C. right now don't enjoy special privileges. In other words, they can't say, well, I'm from Washington, and therefore life is special for me. But in Paul's day, to live in the city of Rome was a big deal. It meant special privileges. In other words, the Roman citizens, the the ones who lived in the city of Rome, had privileges and benefits and a wonderful circumstance that people who lived in the Roman Empire could not enjoy. It was a big deal to live in the city of Rome. Now, here was the dilemma. If Caesar gave land to a soldier in Philippi, then he'd no longer live in Rome and he'd lose all these benefits. So what did Caesar do? Caesar said, I declare Philippi to be Rome. If you live in Philippi, if you're a citizen of Philippi, it's like you're a citizen of Rome. Now, again, this was significant. A writer by the name of Carol Ashby summarizes that there were four classes of people in the Roman Empire. There were citizens of Rome, there were Latins, there were non-citizens, and there were slaves. And, of course, the one that you wanted to have is you wanted to be this citizen of Rome. Now, what were some of the benefits and how does it tie to our subject? Well, in the website, BibleStudy.org, we read at least some of the benefits. Those who possessed such a status enjoyed a wide range of privileges and protections which varied over time and place. Some of the more common benefits were the right to vote in assemblies and to be eligible to run for civil or public office. It also included the right to make legal contracts, and to hold property, as well as the privilege of immunity from some taxes and legal obligations. They even had the ability to request Caesar himself to hear their case. Additionally, citizens could not be tortured or whipped or scourged, except for treason. Now, you can imagine for a moment in a society like this, for someone to say, I'm in a room, you know, both Paul and Peter were martyrs. Both of them died for their faith, but they died different ways because Paul was a citizen of Rome. Paul was beheaded. According to history, he was beheaded. He was fast, much more painless. Peter was crucified. It was, you, you couldn't crucify a Roman citizen. And so Paul took advantage of this so... What is Paul saying here when he says to the Philippians, you live as citizens? He's saying, you think it's a big deal that you're a Philippian citizen, which meant that they were dual citizens of Philippi and Rome it's a big deal, you're, you're special, you walk around and you can kind of your, hang your head high, you know, you can say, I've got all these privileges, I don't have to pay certain taxes, I can own property, I can do this, I can do that, I can even appeal to Caesar if I have a lawsuit. I, I, I'm a, uh, this is like a big deal to be a citizen of Rome. And Paul's making the point, yes, it is, but I'm asking you, To live differently as citizens of heaven, which is infinitely better. I mean, if it's a big deal to be a citizen of Rome, how much of a bigger deal is it to be a citizen of heaven? When you put your faith in Christ, you become a child of God, and the Spirit of God comes to live in you. You're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You're given the gift of eternal life. You're going to spend an eternity with God in heaven. God looks down. He says, this one's mine. I love this one. I want this one. I mean, it is an amazing privilege to be a child of God. And so what Paul is basically saying is, I, I just want you to live up to the, the reality of who you are. Don't just live for this world. Live differently. Live as a citizen of heaven. And he emphasized that in Philippians three twenty and 21, a few chapters later, where he used the same Greek word he had used in chapter one. And again, it's not a word he typically used. He wrote, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. He's reminding his listeners, listen, we're citizens of this amazing kingdom. I know it's a big deal to be a citizen of Philippi. To be considered to be a Roman citizen with all the, the benefits that are assigned to that. But this is infinitely better because with this other citizenship, actually this body, you're going to get a new one one day. You're going to get a new home that's eternal. It's a much better situation. Remember that. That's where our true citizenship is. And therefore live differently as a result. Live a life worthy of this message, live a life worthy of your new identity as children of God, ones who've been saved through the blood of Christ. But it raises the question, what would it look like? And here's where we get to the applications here tonight. Exactly what would it look like then to say, well, I'm going to live a life that's worthy then of, of who I am in Jesus, live a life that's worthy of the glory of this amazing message, what would it look like? Well, as I look at the book of Philippians, I see at least three things that I think would show what this could look like. The first one is this, that I think it means loving others and pursuing unity. Throughout the book of Philippians, Paul talks about this. In fact, some have suggested that that's why he wrote the book because there were these two women named Iodia Iodia and Syntyche that couldn't get along. And he wrote this book saying, get along with one another. But in Philippians 1 and verse 27, which is our key verse, notice how he applies it. He says, just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, live well as citizens up to this amazing message. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear about you that you are standing firm. He says, in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith it comes from the gospel. One spirit, one mind, working side by side. Earlier in chapter one, he said, I pray that your love would abound still more and more. I want your love to just keep growing and continue to grow. And in chapter two, he begins by saying, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same purpose, same love for one another, to have unity. And this is one of the ways in which I think Christians demonstrate that they are indeed Christians. I mean, didn't Jesus say, by this will everybody know that you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another? Now, As I look in our world today, and I even think of the church, oftentimes the church is not known for love, is it? Oftentimes what we're known for are the things that we're against. There's something about love that when people see it, they say that you're different because of the love, especially when it's hard to love. When you show love and it's very, very hard to love. I think it's kind of interesting that Paul used this word from which we get our English word politics when he says live as citizens. He's, he's actually using the Greek word for politics. I find it interesting that we came through this so divisive political season. And I'm not a huge Facebook fan, but I have, this, I have all these Facebook friends, as many of you do as well, and I've been, I've been watching all of this dialogue here, and I just can't believe it. I mean, there's some people I've thought, I should probably delete these people from Facebook because they upset me so much, but I want to know what people are thinking, and I just look how they're going at each other, and I think the hatred and the divisiveness And I understand that perhaps in our world and in our culture, but it should not be true of Christians. By this shall all people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so I think Paul was calling us to be one mind and one purpose and one heart and one love and and pursuing this goal of the gospel. Second, I think applying this would involve being careful how we live being careful how we live. And this could be a very broad area. I don't know that we need to get into too many specifics, but I'll read a couple verses here in a minute. But it's kind of based on this idea that as Christians, we should live a certain way, and there are certain things that we might do that are inconsistent with our profession. Now, it wouldn't take much imagination to think of what some of those things are, but people are watching our lives. And when we live certain ways, it speaks well for the gospel. And when we do certain things we shouldn't do, it speaks against the gospel. Paul said in Philippians 3 and verse 17, he said, Join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. He's saying, follow my example. If you want to know what this looks like, to flesh out what it looks like, he says, imitate me. Look at other people that are living this way. This is how we're supposed to be living our lives, in a way that brings glory to the gospel and brings glory to our faith. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he said, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. I love this picture because he's saying, you know, we live in a world that's crooked. We live in a society that's crooked. And yet we have the potential to live as stars, as lights in the world. Now, specifically, he talked here about not grumbling and not arguing, which is something that's so common in our world today, especially if you're in the work world, outside the church context. I've worked, uh, I worked in about 10 different companies before I kind of settled on what I'm doing now. And boy, the complaining complaining, which is constant. He says, you want to be above reproach. You want to be blameless. You want to, you, you want to point to the world that you're a child of God so that people see the difference in your life. And again, it could, it could show itself in a variety of different ways. The writer of the book of Colossians, Paul, listed some of the things that should be true of us as Christians, I don't have slides for this, but just listen as I read it. He said, therefore, in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, therefore put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, the things of this world, this citizenship of this world. Put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. And then he begins listing some things. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry, You once walked in these things, you know, but now he's saying, now you're a child of God. And now you must also put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice. Malice is the desire to get even with people. Slander, speaking against others. Filthy language from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Since you've put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, you're being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your creator. You're becoming more and more like your God. That's what he's encouraging us to do. And so in a very general sense, he's just saying, as Christians, there are certain ways in which we should live. Should Christians be dishonest? Should Christians have the same values that the world has? Should we have the same morals that the people in the world have? No, we're Christians. And we should live as citizens of heaven, not of this world. And so we love others and pursue unity. Second, we be careful how we live and by the way, we do that by the grace of God and none of us will do it perfectly. We're all gonna fail in many ways. I'm not, you know, I think sometimes people are afraid to say, well, I just can't live up to even what it means to be a Christian. No, we're all a work in progress. In fact, your failures provide opportunities for you to shine. You, you do something that you shouldn't do in the workplace or wherever it is and you go back to that person, you say, I'm sorry, they might have a heart attack. They say, well, you're different. Even in our failure, I think we have opportunities to shine Christ and point to Christ. We're not expected to be perfect. We're forgiven ones. But it doesn't mean that we just throw it all aside and say it doesn't matter how we live. Paul says it does matter. But the last point is this, to focus on serving Christ. In Philippians 2, 19 through 21, Paul wrote, now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I also may be encouraged when I hear news about you, for I have no one else like minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus or those of Jesus Christ. It's that last phrase that's the key. Earlier in this book, Paul made the point for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I think ultimately that's what it means to. To live as a citizen of heaven, it means, again, to live for the one who died for us. It means to begin seeking the interests of our Savior, not our own. It means to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and not our own kingdom, which is what Jesus asked us to do, didn't he? He said to his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't seek the kingdom of this world. We devote ourselves to the kingdom of this world. It, it ends this world is gonna end and everything with it, but that kingdom's gonna go on forever. And one of the main ways in which I think we serve Christ, by the way, is the gospel, which is again something he emphasized in the book. In that key verse, Philippians one twenty-seven, he said, I want you to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. The reason unity matters is that we have a message. And so we live up to the message, and then we also spread the message. When he talked about not complaining or arguing, he went on to say, and as we live as children of light, we're holding fast this message, the gospel message, and we spread it to other people. <clears throat> so let me briefly summarize what I've talked about. Because of the gospel, our citizenship is in heaven. That's, that's our true identity. Therefore, our takeaways: do we represent Christ as citizens of heaven? Some of the ways we can do this are to love others and pursue unity, to be careful how you live, examine your life, and third, focus on serving Christ. Now, I just want to encourage you as a takeaway to think of those things. Ask, what is the area in which I need to be working in order to be a better representative of Christ? Is it to love better? By the grace of God, again, I don't think this is stuff we can crank out. We need God's Spirit to help us with this love others and pursue unity? Is it to be careful how we live? Are there things in our lives that we just need to cut out because we recognize that it's just inconsistent with who we claim to be as Christians? Or is our serving, our whole life about our own interest in building up our own kingdom? Or is it about carrying out the will of Christ, as Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain? I think that's what it's all about. I encourage you to evaluate your life. And then finally, I want to mention again, as I have the other week, some of you maybe don't know where you stand with God. And that would be the most important thing you can do is to put your trust in Jesus. I've already talked briefly about it, that we need to come to a point where we acknowledge that we've sinned against God and that we need a Savior. And we reach out to Jesus as God's solution to the problem. And he's the solution because the sinless one paid the price in full for your sin. So God could extend forgiveness to you as a free gift. The response God is looking for is to put your trust in Jesus. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not suffer eternal ruin, but instead will have eternal life. And so if you've never done that, I'd encourage you to do it tonight, just in the stillness of your heart. I know I've blown it, I need a savior. And today I put my trust in Jesus. If you want to know more about that, I encourage you after the service, there'll be one or two people up here that would be willing to talk with you about that. We have a booklet that we can offer you at the the desk there, uh, the Welcome Center, or I encourage you to come to Starting Point because you could get that question answered, namely the question, how we get right with God, plus a host of other questions that will be addressed in Starting Point. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for what it means to know you and thank you that you love the world so much that you'd call us to yourself, that we have the privilege of being called children of God, ones who are Christians, ones who reflect your son. Lord, and we recognize that even though this message of the gospel is free and eternal life is free, at the moment we believe we are entering into a relationship with a Savior, an eternal relationship. And we want our our life to reflect that relationship more and more as we live for the one who died for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.